I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he directs the Future of the Middle Class Initiative and co-directs the Center on Children and Families. He writes for a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, The Guardian, National Affairs, The Atlantic, Democracy Journal, and Wall Street Journal. His book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, shows how the basic social structures defining masculine maturity and success have been shattered, and how they can and must be reinvented. Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Looking forward to this. Well, as am I. And your reputation as a researcher and policy advisor, focusing on remedying societal ills, specifically around inequality, through action at the societal and structural level, I think speaks for itself. But for our audience, a brief primer. Political Magazine named you one of the top 50 thinkers in the U.S. in 2017 for your work on class and inequality. You sit on the board of Jobs of the Future. You're an advisor to the American Family Survey and to the Equity Center at the University of Virginia. You previously served as a member of the Government of Canada's Ministerial Advisory Committee on Poverty. And I must note to our listeners that this is really just a partial list. And your new book of Boys and Men is filled with fantastic research on the issue of what's ailing boys and men today, from education to the workplace to fatherhood. And while we'll definitely be referencing your research throughout our chat, I want to try and ground this conversation in the personal to start us off. You dedicated your new book to three men in your life, your sons, George, Bryce, and Cameron. My first question is a bit of a softball. Your youngest son, Cameron, set up an arcade in your basement back in March of 2020 with Street Fighter II Champion Edition, (laughs) Galaga, and Final Fight. Three absolute bangers, three classics. Yeah. So what's been your favorite game to play with him and your sons? And has your arcade collection grown in the last three years? Uh, that's such a great way to go. And I think I tweeted at the time a picture of that, of the Gallagher one saying, I've never loved my sons more. It was actually a joint, a joint present from them. But then, yeah, my youngest son, Cameron, who's the techie among them, set it up. And there's a bit of a backstory to it, which is that Gallagher was my game growing up. I played a lot of games growing up, like Defender, Space Invaders, Missile Attack, Asteroids. But Gallagher was really the one that I, I spent a lot of time on. And so that was the one I was most excited about. That's the one that I can still beat them at. (laughs) A Street Fighter, I can, they're just so much faster. Basically, (laughs) I'm just good in 2D where I'm just shooting one way and these things coming down at me. I can still beat them at that. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to beat me at all the others. Actually, there's a module in there now that allows me to have Pac-Man and a whole bunch of other games too. So that's been good fun. So we still have the three games still there, still in our basement. And what's great is that even among the young people today who've grown up with the internet and they've grown up with just astonishing quality online games. And I actually finished Far Cry 5 with Cameron as well, which was great fun. They still just love these old games as well. There is still something incredibly alluring about the simplicity of those games. So we still have a lot of fun with them. Yeah, they're classics for a reason. I mean, yeah, Street Fighter 2 and Final Fight are more my generation. Galaga was a bit before my time. Correct. That's partly a generational thing, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But they, <laughs> they hold up. I mean, I'm biased. I'm an old man now, but they hold up. And, you know, a couple years, I would say maybe three or four years before Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition came out, right around the time that I finished kindergarten, faculty at my elementary school recommended to my mom and dad that I be held back from first grade. It was because they were told I was, quote, not emotionally mature enough to advance. My parents heeded their advice. Honestly, I I think the teachers were probably correct in that instance. And I instead went to something called pre-first. It was more advanced than kindergarten, but not quite at the speed of first grade. 
So talk to us a bit about your son Bryce's experience with elementary school and the decision that you and your wife Erica grappled with as he was about to enter kindergarten. Sure. But can I ask where you were when that happened to you? Which state were you in when you did pre-first? I was in Northern California. This was the late 80s. And in fact, I came across a 1991 article in the New York Times called The New Breed, The Pre-First Grader. It's a really interesting time capsule at that time. Like they're interviewing people from all over the United States about whether pre-first is actually valuable or not and how some people think that it is and how some people think that it's not. But I just really connected to that passage in your book where you were talking about how you were kind of struggling with that own decision. Not exactly the same. It was about what age to enter Bryce into kindergarten, but I I felt connected to that passage. Yeah, it was that classic. So he was relatively young for his year, but it sounds like he may have had some of the same issues as you. He just was maturing a little bit more slowly in terms of social skills and emotional skills. And those can affect academic skills too, but it was just our strong sense he just wasn't ready. We were actually in the UK at the time, and the UK is even more regimented about school entry than most US states are, although some US states are quite regimented now too. And so it's quite difficult. It wasn't just this sense of, sure, just wait a year. It's like, actually, no, the school were quite opposed to it. And so we ended up compromising. And so whilst our instincts, and my wife's instincts in particular, were like, he's not ready, we should wait a year, the school were basically saying, well, we don't know if there'll still be a place for him a year from then, which was probably not true, but it was quite a strong almost like a threat, essentially, to say, you better get him in now. So we compromised and put him in halfway through the year. And to this day, I just bitterly regret that decision. And because I was probably more, less sure than my wife, I held myself accountable for that compromise. And some ways, I think it was the worst of all worlds because he went into that school year. He didn't wait a whole year like you. He just went in. So he was kind of behind his peers, but he hadn't had the full year of extra maturity, which would have benefited from. So if I could go back again, that's one of the parenting decisions I would absolutely make differently and say, yeah, all our instincts were telling us he's not ready. He's not ready. But the system was saying, it's industrialized system. Basically, it was like, okay, right. You just get stamped with a date when you're born and that's the, and then you just automatically enter school at that date. Right. And it made quite a big impression on me because he struggled throughout school, not necessarily just because he was younger or was struggling with maturity, but just because in many ways he was a boy. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into some of that, but I think we set him off at a disadvantage by our failure. And I will say my failure to just have the courage of our conviction, stand up to the education system and say, no, he's not ready. We're waiting here. We didn't do that. And I actually think we should be doing that for many more. And these pre-first programs like the one you experienced, are you can see them in various US states and various school districts, and they tend to be more boys doing it than girls. And I think that's because boys tend to not be as ready as early as girls. And so I think that's a good sign that people are willing to accept there are differences between boys and girls and to think about that in terms of policy. But on a personal level, I just think, yeah, we we screwed that one up. <laughs> Not that child, <laughs> that decision. When you're, <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. when you're up against the entire educational structure that's telling you to go a certain way, it can be really hard to stand up to that, especially if they're saying, well, if he misses the boat, there might not be a boat there for him when he comes back. And you know, one of the things that I found really interesting about reading that 1991 New York Times article was that there wasn't a single paragraph, not a single sentence where they mentioned what I observed when I was in pre-first, which is that 80%, maybe 85% of my class were boys. And so I guess my question to you to kind of lead into your research and your book in general is, why is that the case? Why for me was pre-first 80 to 90% boys? What's happening? What's causing that difference? Well, boys do mature on average just more slowly than girls. And the two ages where you see this biggest gap, and this is, it's very important, I think, to be clear what we're saying here, because when we say mature, we're not talking about, oh, you're so immature, eye-rolling way, 
although it might include that. It's just it's neuroscience. It's that that boys' brains do develop at a slightly different pace to girls. They tend to acquire some of the skills a little bit later than girls. And it looks like the biggest gaps are at about the age of five, in other words, when we start school, and then about 10 years later, about 15, 16. So in, in the middle of adolescence, there's a, a big gap. If anything, is bigger gap in adolescence. Because girls hit puberty earlier, they develop their brains, their prefrontal cortex, which is the bit of your brain that helps you to get your homework done, crudely put develops earlier in, in girls. And so what's happening with something like that pre-first, and I see similar stories from, from other places, and it's something I want to do more work on looking at that history, is that it is by default a way to just give boys that extra time, or at least some boys that extra time, which on average boys are going to need more than girls. So what it demonstrates is that there is some biological difference in development and the relationship between chronological age, literally how many years you've got under your belt and your developmental age differs slightly between boys and girls by an order of about a year. But a year a year matters a lot in education. And especially when you get into high school, that's really where you see these big gender gaps opening up. But I think you can see them being seeded right from the beginning. And so one of my proposals is we should think about starting boys in school a year later just by default. Is a year, I mean, even that suggestion to many people would seem revolutionary. And I think on a societal level, things become instituted and then we just take them as almost gospel. You must start college at 18. You have to start kindergarten at age six. If you start at any other point, there's either something wrong with you or you're bucking the system. And so we've kind of wedged ourselves in this kind of one size fits all approach as if you were to give a large t-shirt to every single human being on earth and then be shocked that not all of them fit inside the t-shirt. It just seems like such a structural problem. I mean, a lot of the work that you do on inequality has to deal with this very thing, like the structural issues of society that cause many of our individual level problems. Besides redshirting, besides keeping boys back for a year, does our educational system just require a total rethink in terms of when children start, when they finish, when's an acceptable level to start college, is college right for everybody? It seems like the entire system needs a rethink. It does. And for all kinds of reasons, which are related to class inequality, as well as some of the gender gaps that we're, we're talking about mostly here, there's a structural set of challenges. And I'm really glad you, you highlighted that way, Michael, because I do think that particularly when it comes to some of these issues of boys and men, there's a tendency to just see the individual as a problem, right? So it was, you weren't immature enough. You know, my son, Bryce, he wasn't ready. What have we done as parents, et cetera, rather than saying, wait, 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 maybe the school system's not <laughs> set up correctly. And as an education policymaker said to me when I was discussing this, I said, well, look, we have to start kids at some time. We can't literally have an individual education plan for every child. There's a degree of inescapable kind of industrialism to, to the school system, which is one reason, of course, why many parents will choose to go private because they get smaller schools, more choice. A lot more kids are held back a year. I shouldn't even say held back a year. That phrase is wrong, isn't it? But they, a lot of them start year, uh, school a year later. Just to interject, though, I mean, that very phrase that you caught yourself making is a symptom of the structure we're all trapped within. Exactly. That's exactly your T-shirt point. What I'm, you know, I, I took that very phrase. That's why I, I said it. And I thought, no, that's exactly the problem. And I think there's a few things going on here. One is there's this sense of just we use these very crude proxies like chronological age, and it'd be much better if we could individualize it, give more flexibility. And that would mean, I think, a lot more boys starting school later. So in a sense, my proposal to just, okay, let's have all the boys start school a year later, maybe by having the girls start a year earlier. But either way, just that the boys are probably going to need an extra year. It's just a kind of new kind of industrial answer. And so one good criticism of my position is, well, look, why don't we just tailor it a little bit, maybe in some ways that pre-first can. Great. I'm all for that if we have the resources and we can do it. 
And there are other ways in which the education system badly needs to be updated to serve many more of our kids and children and young adults better, including our boys. And, and one is the move away from more applied learning styles, so more hands-on learning styles. Sometimes that can take the form of vocational, but it's more about the pedagogy. It's more about the way that you learn, and it's less sitting still, less book learning, and more learning by doing. That's something that does disproportionately seem to help boys. And so to the extent we've moved away from that kind of learning, from those more applied hands-on learning styles, that has actually put boys at more of a disadvantage. And it's one of the reasons I think we lose so many boys in high school. Like even if they're there, they're sort of checked out. There's this great phrase in the labor market of people who've retired but not left the job yet. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I do, yes. And there is a similar thing happening in high schools, right? We all know the kids that are just treading water they can get out of there i mean they're still maybe technically enrolled but they're not really there and that happens to so many and i think it's just we just lose them especially in the last year or two of high school and i agree with you in the implication of your statement about college isn't for everyone my my main concern about that is what we're not doing there is saying other people's kids don't need to go to college we always think our own kids need to go to college of course And so we need to make sure the alternatives are ones that we would take seriously for our own kids. And right now, there's still such a premium on college education in the labor market, very often wrongly, that this is a difficult balance to strike. But I'm quite sure that some kind of post-high school training is essential, but there's really high quality vocational tracks. There's really, really good certifications you can get without having to go down the four-year path. I actually made a video ages ago about social mobility. It was using Lego bricks to show people moving up and down. And one of the things I said in there was, go to college. This was to low-income kids. And I would amend that now. I do think I fell a bit into that trap of the college, 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 because the descriptive evidence on average for college being so important in the labor market is strong. But, but I think that's blinded us a bit to the fact that we've become unitary. The US education system has become a route march from kindergarten to postgrad if you get that far. And it's just a pretty straight, it's like a, one of those Roman roads. You know, Well, actually, in the US, this doesn't land quite as well as in Europe. But <laughs> in Europe, if you say a Roman road, everyone knows what you mean because they were dead straight. So the soldiers could march faster, but they are dead straight. If you see a dead straight road in Europe, you know it's Roman. And that's what the US education system feels like to me, like a Roman road that we're just marching our kids and young people along. Well, and no wonder they check out. You know, if it feels like something was made by rote, if it feels like something was made in a machine and there's no way for children to experiment and to find their own way and to maybe even customize their own classes in the way that you would in college or grad school, you can take a class from here and take a class from there and kind of make a patchwork that interests you. If there's no option for children to learn in different ways at the elementary, middle school, and especially the high school level, I can't blame them for checking out the same way that someone in their 50s, 60s, 70s with no promotional job prospects or feeling like they've hit a dead end in in their work life. And what seems to be the issue here, Richard, that you're really pointing to is it's a collective action problem. A recent guest of the podcast, a wonderful author by the name of Pete Davis, he has this book called Dedicated, where he talks about the importance of dedicating oneself to either a task or a vocation or a community for a long period of time, something he calls long haul heroes, the people who keep our electoral system alive, the people that keep our communities alive, the people that keep recreational sports, like all the things that we kind of take for granted because they're just there. He dedicates this book to people like that. But he made this really interesting analogy while we were talking. And he said, the reason people care about basketball, right, which at its very base level is kind of a game that was made in arbitrary fashion, like all sports, right? At some point, someone decided we're going to put a round ball here. We're going to put a hoop over here. You'll throw the ball in a hoop. And depending on how far away you are from it, you'll score different points, right? 
all kind of arbitrary, chosen by human beings. But then over time, we made the institution of basketball. And making that sport an institution gave it value, gave it power. So now you have documentaries about Michael Jordan in which grown men are crying watching it because we decided it mattered to us. And I think similarly, the collective action problem around things like vocational education and college alternatives, we need to treat them like we treat basketball. We need to make society care about those things because then we'll care about them. But it's almost like this prisoner's dilemma where like no one can kind of get together and decide, okay, together as a society, we're going to say you don't need five previous years of experience for a job you should get at 22. Yeah, you're right to say it's a collective action problem because we're also trapped within the system. And, you know, and I feel trapped within it. So I'm having actually the same, you know, this, the son I was just talking about, Bryce, who's zigzagging his way through his higher education career. Let's put it that way. He's had some great opportunities. He's actually became a professional esports coach for a while in Las Vegas. Okay. That's awesome. Go for that. Yeah, that was just his dream. And it's like, you should definitely stop out of college to go pursue that dream. And then he worked in landscaping for a while. He's been an educator and it's just really just, he's not a great fit for him in the higher education system. And so we'll see jury still out whether or not that's going to work for him. And I do feel genuinely torn as someone that studies what's happening in the labor market and education. It's clear to me that his career trajectories are going to be slightly easier and slightly more open if he's literally just ticked the box of college degree. I don't want the world to be that way. <laughs> I wish it to be different. And in fact, I've strongly encouraged him to say, look, just do something else. Go into teaching and then pick up a, a qualification later. But I agree that we we get trapped within these institutional equilibria, which is we have an opportunity structure that is the way it is. And it's very hard to change it while simultaneously benefiting from it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's where public policy comes in. It's like zoning or any of these other or tax policies. We're all benefiting from systems that we know to be unfair, but it's very, very hard not to continue to operate within that system to your own advantage. And I think it's asking too much of people, honestly, to sacrifice themselves or their own kids as kind of like an N of one social policy intervention. You know, I'm, I'm not willing to use my own kids as a social policy intervention, by and large. <laughs> and I do know people that will. I mean, I met this yeah. woman. She said, well, I deliberately sent my daughter to the worst school in the city I could find. Uh, she's a very upper middle class woman and she's like because it's very unless people like me do that those schools will always remain terrible and right you're a hypocrite reeves for sending your kids to bethesda chevy chase high school i get it i mean i, I get it someone has to charge the cockpit right but it, unless everyone does it at the same time yeah not me not everyone yeah i mean actually it was very interesting that back to your collective action problem and it's a just a, a story from the uk which was actually was where tony blair the former prime minister lived they lived in a neighborhood in north london that happened to be quite affluent but the local school was really struggling. And the reason it was really struggling was because all, all the affluent parents sent their kids private. So it was a collective action problem. Mm. And actually something quite similar happened with my secondary school too, where they basically, a bunch of parents banded together and said, okay, we'll all send our kids. They literally had meetings where they all committed to send their kids to the school. And it actually happened with my secondary school too, which was a really struggling school. And they had a new headmaster. And the new headmaster literally went around knocking, door knocking, and gathering parents and having meetings. And he was saying, I'm going to turn this school around, but I need you to trust me and send your kids here. I need you to do that. And basically, my parents were among a bunch of people who were, like, could have, they had the option for us not to go to that school. And they all just looked each other in the eye and said, okay, let's do it. Let's jump together. And the school became much better. That's very rare though, right? You genuinely need public policy to help you bring about those kinds of problems. Yeah. The other resource I'll point to is a book that had a big influence on me called Bottlenecks by a philosopher called Joseph Fishkin. 
which contrasts what he calls a unitary opportunity structure, which is what we just talked about, the Roman road, the route march, the only one way, with bottlenecks. And these bottlenecks are very narrow spaces in the opportunity structure that you have to get through in order to get the good things on the other side, which is a bit like having to get a four-year college degree in the current US labor market. And you contrast that with what we should be aiming for, which is opportunity pluralism, mm. where there are plural pathways to get the good things in life, You know, high quality alternatives to college, lots of upward mobility within firms, like within companies, there are artificial barriers to upward mobility. So finding alternative routes is a hugely important part of creating a better opportunity structure. And the reason that relates to gender is because the current route march education system is actually disadvantaging more of our boys than of our girls. And so it's even more important. So from a gender equity perspective, having those alternative pathways will be good for everybody, but it'll be particularly good for boys. And some of the stats around education, how boys are performing are quite striking. Seven out of 10 high school valedictorians are girls. For every one male college graduate over the next five years, there will be two female graduates. And on Real Time with Bill Maher, you said, quote, it turns out that a level playing field exposes who are the better players, end quote. So to kind of use your own quote from Bill Maher as a jumping off point and to kind of play devil's advocate here, why is that a problem? If the playing field is now level, right? If the only reason that boys were outperforming girls pre-1970s was because girls were being held back, right? Girls had a hand on their head while they were trying to swim in water. Now that that hand is gone and girls are excelling, should an average athlete get a handicap so everyone can compete with LeBron, right? Like if I'm making the devil's advocate argument, if girls are just kicking ass in school, why is that bad? Well, it's not bad that girls are kicking ass. It's great that they are. And that's obviously a huge a transformation over the last 50 years. So actually, there's a bigger gender gap in favor of girls and young women today in education than there was in favor of boys and men 50 years ago. So just to take higher education as an example, although, as we've just said, it's certainly not the only way that we should be looking at education. But in 1972, when Title IX was passed, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree than women. But today, women are 15 percentage points more likely to get a college degree than men. So there's a bigger gender gap today than there was when Title IX was passed, just the other way around. So the question, I think, is always, well, why does that matter? Like, why doesn't inequality matter? Especially if the general trend is, is upwards for most people. And well, for most of that period, it has been, although much more slowly for men than for women. Why does it matter if one group is way ahead of another group? And it might matter because it will affect your future life chances. So it might matter in terms of like what's going to happen in the economy. So that might be one reason to worry about it. But of course, it's a weird one with women and men because you know men are still doing pretty well in the labor market, although we should narrow that to well-educated men are doing quite well in the labor market. Other men are not, and maybe we'll get to that. But it's also, and here I'll have to modify my metaphor slightly, it's also potentially suggestive that if you do see this big gap between two groups, it's pretty predictive, and it's much bigger for poorer kids and in poorer areas. That might suggest there's something about the system itself. So the point I was trying to make with the level playing field analogy is just a, why were girls so far behind before? And it's because we had an unlevel playing field in the sense that the girls were just, they weren't allowed to go on to higher education. They weren't allowed, they weren't promoted, they weren't encouraged. And so it wasn't level in that sense. It wasn't culturally level. The cultural playing field wasn't level. Now that we've done that, they turn out to be kind of much better in the education system. But I'd now modify or rather extend the metaphor and say, if anything, now the playing field, I would argue, is leveled slightly against boys and men. 
So it was culturally leveled against girls and women before. We've addressed that. And now it's structurally slightly leveled against boys and men, which is why the girls and women are doing so well. So the main reason for this huge overtaking, this massive increase in women's educational outcomes and girls was just the end of those sexist artificial barriers. But now I think we can look and say, well, wait, it's not just that they caught up. They're now doing so much better. So why are they doing better? And they're better players, but (laughs) to say the playing field's level misses the fact that the playing field in some ways is a bit more female-friendly. So I'd have to adjust slightly the metaphor and just say, well, let's look and say, is it level? And actually now I think it's in many ways tilted slightly in favor of women and girls. One of the things that left a big impact on me while reading your book and then just doing additional research for our conversation was how in many ways, boys are are actually quite fragile. They're affected a lot more by their environment than girls are, which kind of goes counter to a lot of the stories we're told either throughout history or in our modern media about boys and men. Girls have seemingly identical outcomes, whether they're raised in two-parent households or a single-parent household, and boys absolutely do not. And we see this play out over and over and over again. And so, It seems like our tales and traditions throughout history revere men for their strength. The data seems to bear out that during adolescence and even into adulthood, men just seem to be much more at the whims of things that are happening to them. They're more susceptible to the conditions of their environments. And girls seem to be much more resilient regardless of what is thrown at them. My question to you, Richard, is why is that? Why do how boys and girls seem to do in adverse situations seem to run so counter to the stories we tell ourselves about boys and girls? Well, the honest answer is we don't really know. We know that it's true. We know that, in particularly growing up, that boys are more sensitive to their environment in exactly the way you just identified. I should say that it's not true that girls' outcomes are identical in single and two-parent families. It's just that girls are much less affected by that than boys are. Mm. And what's striking about this is across a whole range of things. So it's like family poverty. All of the things I'm about to list affect boys much more than girls much, much more. Family poverty, neighborhood poverty, family instability or single parenthood, which you just mentioned, the quality of the local school, the school you're going to, is it good or a bad school, local rates of crime, even some aspects of kind of environmental health seem to just affect boys a bit more. So they are more fragile in the way that you've identified. They're more sensitive to their environments. And that's a well-known fact in social science literature that looks at these things, which is that just boys are just more developmentally sensitive. And there's lots of theories about why. There's this idea, well, is it about male role models? Is it something about, well, because single parents, they're missing the dads? Okay. But then what about the school? Why is it that in a weaker school, the girls aren't affected by that quite as much as boys? Why is it that girls are more upwardly mobile out of poverty than boys? Why is it that in the poorest families, you see the biggest gap in college going rates between not just boys and girls, but brothers and sisters? There are studies that look at within the same family, the poorer the family, the less likely the boy is to go to school compared to the girl. So the psychologists have suggested that there's just a greater developmental sensibility, just that the personality development, the boys are a bit easier to derail. Once they're off the rails, they're harder to get back on the rails, that their psychology is somewhat more fragile in its development, certainly through kind of adolescence, which just makes them a little bit more sensitive. They also benefit quite significantly when when they go into kind of better environments. Perhaps the most striking and controversial example of that I discovered was a really good study of putting kids into foster homes, getting them out of state homes and into a foster home or an adoptive home, either a long-term foster home or adoptive home, it had a much bigger positive effect on the boys than on the girls. 
So if you're a policymaker and you're just being really ruthlessly focused on return on investment, you'd be much more concerned to get boys adopted and fostered than girls, just because there was such a much bigger effect for them. Wow, why is that? And as I back to where I was, we don't really know, but the evidence is very clear. And it's one of the reasons I ended up writing about this subject in the first place, because you know, as you mentioned at the top, done a lot of work on poverty and inequality. And it turns out that a big part of the inequality and social mobility story is just the fact that boys suffer more from poverty than girls do, which creates an intergenerational cycle of male disadvantage. And so if you want a more equal society, we definitely cannot ignore the boys and men. Yeah. You mentioned a controversial study there. Speaking of controversial, you have a chapter in your book on the biological differences between boys and girls. And you've said in one interview that it's one of the chapters you were urged to take out. So why? Why were you urged to take out something that seems obvious to any parent of a boy and girl? The main reason I was urged to take it out is that it potentially could distract attention from all the other parts of the book. The stuff we've already talked around education, but issues around employment, do you offer more help to boys? What do we do to help fathers, et cetera? And that it would just invite criticism for even raising the specter of what's known as biological essentialism or determinism. And that it would essentially kind of be be a distraction. And the other point was I didn't need it for my argument. That I could actually make pretty much all the other arguments I've made without talking about these biological differences. And that's true. I could have made the book work without that. I would have had to still had to talk about the difference in the timing of brain development, which we've already discussed, because that's such an important and under-discussed issue. The fact that however our brains end up, nobody thinks they develop at the same time or space, right? Anybody that spent any time in a fifth classroom or with 15-year-olds knows that's not true. And that is the biggest difference. It's not in how, but in when we develop. But I decided to keep it because I felt that there weren't very many good faith treatments of this issue out there that it was a good example of a debate that's been polarized and finding it as someone that kind of wrote about it and said, yeah, there are differences, they're on average, the distributions overlap, here's where I think they matter, here's where they don't matter as much. Just actually surprisingly hard to find (laughs) outside of the depths of academia. I mean, I've come to think that there are different levels of of kind of academics at work and there's the sort of surface level ones who you'll kind of read in the New York Times or hear on NPR, et cetera. But then very often there's the ones below them who aren't doing that. That's the level at which there is no controversy at all about biologically based sex differences, not only in our physiques, but in our personalities and our preferences. There's no controversy about that. Once you get past the surface of the kind of books that people are going to talk about over a dinner table and say, oh, it's all a myth, biology is a myth or whatever. But actually the kind of quiet work of the serious, (laughs) serious scientists shows that Yes, as you said at the beginning, it's obvious there are differences. The question is how big are the differences in what areas and how much do they matter? I actually felt that a good faith conversation about that, I came to think that it was essential because otherwise people would be like, wait, 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 what about biological differences? He's he's completely ignored biological differences. I felt that for a lot of my audience anyway, that would actually make the book weaker. Yeah. Well, at least here in America, From a very young age, we're taught about the Declaration of Independence, right? All men are created equal. But I think that they're, especially in our our modern time, that we're kind of forgetting the kind of parenthetical after that, which is in the eyes of God, not necessarily equal in all ways as human beings, right? 
You discuss in the book the need to come to terms with biological reality, like you were just saying, that some differences in the averages between men and women are rooted in biology and are therefore natural. And there seems to be this tension between this view and the belief that outcome disparities between men and women can and must be rectified. So I guess my question to maybe gently push back is, if women excel in areas that men do not or vice versa, is this always an injustice or simply a result of again, on average, natural preferences and proclivities? Well, that's the right question. And that becomes the empirical question that we then are taking out into the world. And and again, the extreme views are unhelpful on both sides of this argument. Where I think it's useful is less in how you might treat an individual. I'm very clear that even if you see differences on average or in distributions, that doesn't allow you or in any way justify discriminating on an individual basis. So to give you a personal example, the fact that my son works in early years, I would be very angry if he's discriminated. In fact, I am very angry when he is discriminated against because he's a man, because people make assumptions about men being less nurturing or potentially even abusive. But my sister-in-law is an engineer, and I'm pretty angry if anyone discriminates against her because they say, well, can women really be good engineers? Right. You know, do they have the right brains for it? <laughs> Equally angry, because what you're doing yeah. is you're, you're making a horrible mistake of taking differences in distributions and applying to an individual. Right. So where is it useful? I think it's useful in a couple of ways. One, one is just observational and the other is more substantive. The observational way that it's useful to be aware of and track these biological differences and just the patterns that we might see play out in society. And what it means, for example, is that you won't always see exact equality of outcome or exact equality or exact equality of shares, say, of a profession under conditions of substantive and genuine and true equality. Everything doesn't have to be 50-50 to have true equality. You don't need androgyny to get equality. So to give a specific example, and I quote some work on this, take engineering. What percentage of engineers will be women under conditions of gender equality? It's not 50%. And the reason it's not 50% is because on average, men are more likely to be interested in things and that way of thinking than women are, right? Uh, On average. And the same is true the other way for, say, something like caring, professions like nursing. So it's not 50%. But some work by Rong Su and James Rounds that I quote in the book suggests that it might be, say, 25%, 30%. So they take the personality traits of men and women and map it onto the occupational structure and say, what would we expect the shares to be if people were choosing based on these observed differences in preferences and personalities? And they get a number of about 25 30%. Right now, it's 15%. And not very long ago, it's 3%. The trouble is that some people will say, and were saying when 5% of engineers were women, they were saying, well, it's just not really women's work, is it? You know, women's brains don't work that way, <laughs> right? They were justifying 5%. A ludicrous statement, yeah. Right. But on the other hand, you'll see other people that would say, let's say we get to 30%, which in some countries we have got, you know, in some countries it's leveling out now. Um, get to 30%, take that's still not good enough. It has to be 50. And I, well, does it? Does it have to be 50? Now, the question is, how do you know? How do you know when you've got to a point, what's that point? What's that magic number? And the answer is, I don't know. But based on what we know from the differences in the overlapping personality distributions of men and women, it's a darn sight more than 5%, but it's not 50%. And it's probably somewhere around 25, 30. I don't know. But all we can do is get towards that and not allow ourselves to be caught in this trap of it's either zero because women's brains don't work that way or 50% or we're still in a patriarchy. Right. That's how it's useful to think about that. And substantively, it's useful because to the extent there are these biological differences, it doesn't mean that culture matters less. It means that culture matters more. 
Because A, culture could either amplify and accentuate those differences or it could diminish them, right? So it can take these differences on average and turn them into back to where you were a moment ago about collective action problems about social norms, right? Why is nursing a women's profession? Well, Florence Nightingale started it in the Crimean War by saying men can't be nurses. It's taken quite a long time even to get to like 11% of nurses being men now. But using the same study that I referenced before, it should be about, say, 25-30% of nurses would be men. Again, not 50%. But if we construct a normative set of equilibria, which is that's women's work, that's men's work, we make it much harder to go into those professions, which means that the numbers don't reflect the genuine underlying preferences. So that's why it matters, because culturally, the messages we send are hugely important. And we've got to find a middle ground between this is women's work and this is men's work, right? Try telling that to Margaret Thatcher in 1979, right? That being prime minister was men's work. This is men's work, this is women's work. That's one extreme, which some conservatives fall into the trap of. But the other extreme is saying, until the day when everything's 50-50, we're still living in a patriarchy, when that's clearly not true, given that there are some differences. And most ordinary people find these statements to be completely uncontroversial. It's just in the higher reaches of the culture war where they're controversial. Yes. So much of our politics, so much of our discussion around social issues seems to be this us versus them, all or nothing proposition. And in this instance, it's either you're full-blown blank slate or you're dedicated to biological determinism. And if you're a man, this is what you should do. And if you're a woman, this is what you should do. And this is for you and this isn't for you. And you're right that it's the upper echelons of society that really believe this kind of all or nothing. But... I mean, as a man of the left yourself, Richard, I'm sure you notice this in your practice at every level of Western governments. I think it was recently, a few years ago, Justin Trudeau said that if the government isn't 50-50 at all levels of men and women, that that's inequality. There is this ascendant belief structure within a lot of, I guess, important leaders on, on the left. And you can see kind of the, the reactionary thing happening on the right as well, although they just don't have as much cultural power as the left does today. But you see this kind of ascendant belief on the left that if things aren't 50-50 in every realm of society, that inequality must exist there. I know you're confident enough in yourself that you can state these truths and not worry that, oh my gosh, that means I'm all of a sudden a man of the right if I say that it's okay if only 30% of engineers are women or only 30% of nurses are men. But do you worry about being grouped as such by your fellow members of the left? I mean, are you getting much pushback in that regard? Well, the first thing to say is that I genuinely don't know what I am. Mm. And I I describe myself in the book as a conscientious objector in the culture wars. That's certainly true. I'm from the UK. I was a member of the Liberal Democrat Party in the UK. That's who I worked for in government. So somewhere in the center. And I'm genuinely not tribal. I think some people are more tribal than others. I think there's good things about that and less good things. To that extent, I'm not looking over either of my shoulders, honestly. I think you're right that my instincts, my inclinations would probably be more characterized as on the center left. I think that's partly because I do see quite an important role for public policy. And I think that done well, good government is good. And the government is one of the ways that we solve those collective action problems. And so I'm, I'm pro the use of government power and resources to solve some of our social problems, much more so than probably most conservatives. So that's probably the thing that puts me a little more on the left in terms of those issues. But I'm not too worried about this because out in the real world, and I do think even in kind of policy circles, like the number of people that have said, of course, of course what you're saying is true, right? <laughs> it's very few people that would say, no, that's absolutely not true. And most people 
are both able to and more importantly wanting to be able to think two thoughts at once. And I do think that that's possible and necessary in policymaking circles. And, wh- and what I'm finding is that people almost want permission in some ways, <laughs> if that makes sense, to be able to say, yeah, okay, fine. If, you, if you're saying I don't have to stop caring about women and girls, then sure, I'm here for the conversation about boys and men because here are the facts. And we talk quite a bit about the facts here, but it was an important part of my strategy to lay out authoritative, objective facts on a whole range of things from gender pay gap to education to employment, et cetera. Really trying to be fair to all sides and call it as I see it. And the appetite for that has been really very significant. And in fact, Jason Furman, who was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for Barack Obama, He's actually just said something nice about my book. He listed it as one of the five books of the year in economics. And he said, to say that there are some policy issues that are very specific to girls and women is not to say there aren't also some policy issues specific to boys and men. We can do two things at once. I'm really heartened by the number of people that really do think that's true and are tired of the bullshit, excuse my language, zero-sum thinking that too many people want to tempt us into that to care about, you, you can either care about A or B. You're not allowed to care about A and B. And people are so over that. And I sense a move against that kind of absurd zero-sum thinking. Zero-sum thinking is poisoning our politics, and it destroys good policymaking. And so the appetite to me seems to be there. Now, we'll see. The proof will be in the pudding if we actually make some changes around some of these issues. But I'm reasonably hopeful. Yes. And it speaks to my own, the tribalism that I'm trying to exorcise from my own body, that I see someone who believes in the importance of governmental policy, and I immediately think left wing. So that's on me. Well, there's lots of national conservatives who are actually prairie pro-government now. I mean, you know, pro-child tax credit, which I am as well. And so I honestly think a lot of these categories have been scrambled. Yes. And we're all seeing the downsides of that, which are real, right? You know, it was nice to know what the parties stood for and where people were. And these coalitions had some sort of coherence, right? Yes. It's like a kaleidoscope now. It's like somebody, and that somebody was largely Donald Trump, picked up the kaleidoscope of American politics and just shook the hell out. Yes. And the pieces haven't settled yet. They really haven't settled. And so that's obviously unsettling, disorienting. It's dangerous in some ways, but it's also thrilling in its possibility. It's like, could it allow more of us to sort of break out of some of these issues and actually not have to see our views be so clustered? One of my friends runs a progressive think tank in the US. And one thing she does is really great is she gets people to come in and they put statements up on the wall, which are kind of classically liberal statements on pro-choice or anti-gun or inequality or whatever. And they say, go and stand in the corner of the statement you agree most strongly with. Okay. And they say, why? And then go and stand in the one that you're least comfortable with, the one you're not sure about, and say, why? What a great thing to do, because what it allows someone to do is to say, you know what? I'm a pro-life, egalitarian, anti-gun Catholic, or whatever, right? Meanwhile, I am very strongly pro-choice, libertarian, what? because that's how people actually are. People's views don't surely, for the love of God, don't actually cluster along the lines of party platforms. Yes. Because God help us if that's true. <laughs> surely as individuals, we have a range of views and we're going to agree with some sides on some things and other sides on other things. And that's great. Yeah. We human beings, we just love stereotyping. In the same way that we have so long loved to sex stereotype, and in many ways that sex stereotyping is still affecting men and women today, it's like, oh, if you're a man, you must be this. If you're a woman, you must this. You can't like sports if you're a woman and you can't like dolls if you're a boy. And we do the same thing with our political parties. But there's something that's a recurring theme in your book, and you've mentioned it several times here in our discussion, which is that there is a reticence, I feel, in society to even want to think about the idea that boys might need help. 
I want to want to get your thoughts on this. I think it's due to a combination of stereotyping and the kind of residue of historical roles that might have made more sense in a more dangerous world, right? Men have long been seen as fighters, as protectors, the first and traditionally only sex to be called to war, the last to board a lifeboat after women and children. And so I think even today, as we have shed so much of our sex stereotyping, although there's still work to be done there, men are still seen fundamentally as actors capable of seizing their own fates, while women are, I think, oftentimes unintentionally, still often talked about as mostly being acted upon. And I feel like that's tainting how we view inequities that most affect men today, because this lens means that any inequalities that tilt towards boys and men are seen as the fault of men, Mm -hmm. while inequalities that are skewing towards girls and women are seen as the fault of society. And I think that affects how we respond. We're all for societal reparations and reparative measures when it comes to girls because they've been acted upon. But if things are affecting boys, well, that's just a result of their bad choices. It's like, to stereotype again, we're very left-wing when offering prescriptions for girls and very right-wing when offering prescriptions for boys. Don't you think? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, actually. I wish I'd I'd had that when I was writing the book. I say something similar, which is this point about the individualization of the problem. It's actually true, but it's kind of we're right-wing in that sense, but it's actually the left agree. They just think in a different way that it's men's fault, right? So there's an old line, which is that women have problems, men are problems. And I think it's because of that stereotyping that you've identified, which leads the right to say, well, it's men's fault for not being man enough, not stepping up, watching too much porn, smoking too much weed, if they could just be more like their fathers. Where the left will say, yeah, it's men's fault because they're too toxic. They haven't realized the world's changed. They're misogynist. They need to be more like their sister. And so caught between one side telling you to be like your dad in a world that that doesn't work in and another side telling you to be more like your sister in a body that that doesn't work in, a lot of men are left floundering and looking for a script, looking for like, what, how am I supposed to be then? And I think it's for precisely the reason you just said, which is this assumption, which I now think is empirically wrong, that women are being acted upon and men are acting. I think actually, if anything, the opposite is true now. I see across a variety of measures, much more agency in girls and women than in men. You see these headline figures around college going and so on too. But even when you look beyond those, I make this distinction in my mind between like the big data points like labor force participation, college completion rates, et cetera. And then the kind of small data points, which are these weird little nuggets that in themselves that you might think, well, that's just a weird small data point. But sometimes I think they're as revealing. And so an example of that is of those who go to college, women are twice as likely to study abroad as men. Wow. In every subject, twice as likely. And it's not a subject-based thing. No one knows why. And again, if you look at reports on this, they're worried about race. They're worried about, oh, it's no one mentions that. Well, why are women twice as likely to go as men? Women are twice as likely to work for AmeriCorps. Women are twice as likely to sign up for the Peace Corps. These things didn't used to be true. But it's not just you see these two-to-one ratios in higher education, but of those who are there, single women more likely to buy their own house. Young men more likely to be living at home with their parents. Young women much less likely to be living at home with their parents. And so on. And so if you construct an agency measure, it's girls and women. All the data you just shared seems to go completely counter to this idea that boys are more willing to take risks. But all the things that you just listed show that it seems to be that girls and women in the 21st century are are much more the risk takers than boys are. They've certainly got more agency. I think how that relates to kind of risk, you would see, yeah, there's a degree of risk involved in that. There's a degree of risk in going to college, actually. You take on debt and so on, too. The evidence for men being more risk-taking is actually much more around physical risk-taking, where that is still very much true. And sometimes that's, of course, a very bad thing, but sometimes it's a good thing. Like It is basically true empirically that if someone runs into a burning building to save strangers, 
and it wasn't their job, it's a guy. Like always, like always. That's true today. There's the Carnegie Hero Award civilian medals to show that 95% men. It just, they can't find women. They're desperately trying to find more women, but just women don't run into burning buildings to save strangers. They just don't. And there is this whole thesis about the disposable male, which is that actually male bodies are less valuable. In ancestral and evolutionary terms, that's probably true. You don't need as many men as you do women to successfully reproduce. And so there is this theory that actually just kind of men, men are just less valuable. And there are some people kind of more on the men's rights side of the argument who say, and that idea of kind of the disposability of men is now really playing out with a vengeance as they've lost economic power. I don't really tend to that view. And if it is true, we should be doing everything in our power to fight against it. You know, the idea that we should accept the fact that men are less valuable than women, I think is actually morally offensive. And there's that last thing I'll say on this is to go back to where you were before about acted on, which I really like, the kind of being acted upon versus acting. That stereotype about men are the agentic ones, they're the ones acting, has really understated the extent to which actually men have worked within social institutions. They've followed scripts. They've been told pretty clearly what they're supposed to do and not do. And so the hard truth here is that mature masculine roles have always been more socially constructed than females. It's harder work to figure out what it means to be able to construct a positive pro-social role for men. And we're falling down on the job. And one of the reasons we're falling down on it is because we don't think we need to do it because we bought the myth of the independent cowboy out there on the frontier. Even in marriage, men now rate marriage as more important than women do. More men think marriage is important than women. Twice as many divorces are initiated by women as by men. But the stereotype would be the ball and chain, you know, she who must be obeyed, you know, the woman snagging her man and dreaming of her wedding and him reluctantly going along with it. That's a stereotype. It's absolutely the opposite now that men are the ones who get most out of marriage and want to get married, not women. The women are the ones that are like, eh, maybe, I'm not sure. So again, there's this huge lag between the empirical reality on the ground and some of our cultural stereotypes. And those are actually leaving a lot of men on the bench now. What you just said there about men needing a script, you talk about this in the book, and I've heard you say it many other times in other interviews, this idea that between men and women, obviously, it's important for both of them to have a story, to have something that they can aspire to, a story that's told to them about themselves so they can become who they need to become, but that boys and men specifically seem to depend more on a script of what it means to be a man so that they can grow into that. If you'll allow me, I want to read a passage from an essay in the Washington Post by Christine Emba titled The Profound Sadness of the Jordan-Peterson Phenomenon, in which she writes, quote, The subtitle of Peterson's book is an antidote to chaos, and many of his readers really do feel as though they're living lives of fracture and disarray, left to twist in the wind by broken families, a fading economy, and new social norms that seem to give succor to everyone except them. Reams of research about young men succumbing to despair, disappearing into video games and pornography and drugs back them up. What is most striking to me, though, is the simplicity of the message. Peterson's teachings are the sort of thing you would expect to learn from a parent, mentor, or religious tradition while growing up. Peterson's role is like that of a clear-eyed friend, someone to whom you can ask questions, with whom you can reflect upon the difficulties of your life, someone who will give you bracing feedback when needed. Do we not have parents anymore? Do we no longer have friends? Peterson's pronouncements all used to be common wisdom, how did it disappear, end quote. And so that final passage there, my question to you, Richard, is just that. Where have the parents gone? My father taught me how to be a man. He is my hero. I am so grateful to have him, as I'm sure 
your boys are so grateful to have you. In addition, of course, to my mother, I learned how to treat women. I learned the value of women. I I became anti-sexist because of my mother and how strong she is. So I guess, again, my question is, where are the men and women in boys' lives when they're needed the most? Where the hell are they? Hmm. I love that quote from Christine's work, and I'm a big fan of hers and her work, even when, and perhaps especially when, when we disagree. But I agree with her completely in the passage that you just read. It nailed Peterson's appeal. The only thing I would add to the fact that he does offer this kind of clear-eyed, you know, frank advice is he also provides an empathetic listening ear. He allows a lot of the young men, and they're the core of his audience, to feel heard. That's huge. And so I would say even in advance of Christine's observation about what he says to them is what he hears from them. And the fact that he just says, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I know you're struggling. Yeah, it's tough right now, isn't it? Yeah, I get, I get that. Yeah. How are you doing? You know, you're not toxic. You know, you, you're in trouble. I get it, right? He's a psychologist by training. And so that's a huge part of his appeal. And, and then he makes an argument and then he discusses it. When I talked to um, a friend of mine, he's a social psychologist, about the fact that my kids were getting really into Jordan Peterson to varying degrees. And he said, well, the thing about Peterson is that he pays young men the courtesy of making an argument. <laughs> and he said, that's very appealing to young men. And he does. He does. He says, like, here's what I think. And he takes them seriously and puts an argument. So why, why isn't that coming from anywhere else? Well, one obvious answer would be that there are many men and boys, I should say, who don't have a man in their lives who as much as by what he says, more by what he does, models what it means to be a man. Kids, more than everybody, anybody else, believe their eyes, not their ears. I suspect that I'll ask, turn the question back on you before I say anything else, but I bet that the way your father taught you was less by sitting you down and giving you a series of rules. It might have been that, but it was more just by observing how he was in the world. Wasn't it more by how he was than what he told you to do? It was both. Yes, watching my father conduct himself in society, see how he handled himself, what it meant to be responsible, what it meant to be a provider for my family, showing me how to handle conflict resolution, how to stand up for myself, how to be thoughtful, that it's, I'm finding myself, you know, my dad's still alive, but I, whenever I talk about him, I, I actually just start getting a little bit emotional. So I'm trying to power through that because- Because you're a man. God forbid that you should weep on the podcast. Well, <laughs> I've been crying on podcasts a lot, by the way. I'm quite weepy myself. So Scott Galloway and I were in tears the other day. Don't hold back. There's an episode that I had with Irshad Manji in which I, I full-blown cried. I do not mind crying on the podcast, but he taught me so much through his actions. That much is true. But I think also importantly- when I had a question, when I had something that was troubling my mind, and even to this day, I talk with him several times a week on the phone, and he's the first person I go to if there was something I got into at work, or there's maybe an issue that I'm having in my relationship, or any kind of question I might have, the first person that comes to my mind to ask is my father. So it's both, I think, Richard. It's that, yes, he modeled what healthy masculinity was. He taught me so much through his actions, but also just the fact that he's there to answer my questions as a father figure, literally, because he's my dad, is so important. Actually, on this topic, are you familiar with the YouTube channel, Dad, How Do I? Question mark. Oh, yes, I've heard. I actually haven't looked at it yet, but somebody else mentioned it to me the other day, so I must look at it. I mean, it's got, I think, 4 million subscribers on YouTube, and it is simply, I mean, it's printed on the tin. It is literally a man who I think maybe in his 40s, maybe early 50s, and the entire point of the YouTube channel is to show, I'm assuming, mostly young men and boys, 
how to do the basics, right? How to tie a tie, how to change oil, how to fix a sink. Right. Yeah. I've seen some of this. Yeah. Yeah. I have now, now you mentioned it. I have seen some of it. It's making me think actually of, uh, I'm going to respond with a couple of quotes actually, if that's okay, because they've come to my mind. Please. The first one is actually one I use in the book that I just pulled up because of listening to you. This is Daniel Beatty. He's an African-American poet. That poem. Oh God, that poem. Yeah. Until he was three years old, he played this game with his father where his father would knock at the door. He'd pretend to be asleep and then he'd jump up into his father's arms and they'd both squeal and laugh until one day that didn't happen because his father was in prison. And 30 years later, Beatty performed this poem, Knock Knock. The poem that he performed includes these lines. 25 years later, I write these words for the little boy in me who still awaits his papa's knock. Papa, come home because I miss you. I miss you waking me up in the morning and telling me you love me. Papa, come home because there are things I don't know. And I thought maybe you could teach me how to shave, how to dribble a ball, how to talk to a lady, how to walk like a man. And I get a bit tearful just reading that. That's a three-year-old boy who didn't then have his father around him to do that, how to talk to a lady. Right. You mentioned that too. And this idea of just enacting and socializing what it means to be a father. And my own father, actually, he commuted, weekly commuted for two years so that I didn't have to move schools. And I didn't really even know that was happening at the time. But I realized later what he'd done when I was having to do a lot for my own kids. He was a breadwinner, but I was happy in the school. And so they made the decision, well, he's just going to have to drive four hours, like each, whatever. I didn't even you know, so blindly unaware, but you're right, you realize it all. And the thing is that it's learned. There's back to this point about the male role and where is this coming from? And Christine's question, like, where is it coming from, from the fathers? I think that what's missing is a sense that it has to be a specific message to boys and men, which is complementary to, in many ways similar to, but has to be distinctly articulated to kind of boys and men. Because the problem right now is Christine's essay suggests that they don't know if anyone's going to need them. And one thing we know for sure about humans, about every single one of us, is that we need to be needed. Mm. When I looked at a piece of work that Fiona Shand had done on suicide, they looked at the words that men had used to describe themselves before committing or attempting suicide. And the two words that men are most likely to use to describe themselves before taking their own life are useless and worthless. And it seems to me inevitable that if you start to feel like there's no use for you in the world, that you have no worth in the world the the chances of you taking your own life or succumbing to one of the addictions that you mentioned is much higher. So the question is, how do we articulate to men, to boys and men, their worth and their use in a society where it's not entirely clear to them that that's true? There's a real danger with the future is female, toxic masculinity, you know, you go girl message, which is, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Right. Trudeau, you mentioned him earlier. He said the future is female. And you see it on mugs and you see it, and I get it, I understand it, and I wouldn't, but I'm just like, I have sons, you know. So my last quote, which I think is relevant to all of this, which is this specific point of that men nurturing in different ways. My father nurtured me by driving across the country to do his job so that I could stay in my school with my friends. Margaret Mead said the following, every known human society has rested on the learned nurturing behavior of men. This behavior being learned is rather fragile and can disappear quite quickly under conditions that no longer teach it effectively. Margaret Mead, the famous anthropologist, of course. Learned nurturing behavior of men. 
because for women, the nurturing behavior is somewhat more biologically based. Again, back to where we were before again, not controversial to most ordinary people. For men, the behavior does have to be more learned to give a surplus to your family, to your community, whether that's through care or cash or whatever. It has to be learned. It has to be more constructed. So the job of creating pro-social masculinity, even in a world where we have gender equality, it hasn't disappeared. That job remains. And in some ways, I think it's even more important to work on the question of what does it mean to be a good man in a world where women don't need men anymore. And that profound cultural question is the one that we're only just beginning to address. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book and think that I'm in the foothills of that journey myself. But at least I hope to have set out that there is a question to be answered here is, what does it look like? Because we've rewritten the script (laughs) of the relationships between women and men in a way that is breathtakingly wonderful, but also incredibly disorienting, especially for men who don't have much economic power. And unless we are willing to take that problem seriously, then we're going to see more men being benched and we're going to see more exploitation of their problems because in the hands of a skillful populist or demagogue, problems can become grievances and grievances are fuel to the populist political fire. And that is where it gets a bit political. I don't mean populist left or right generally. I just mean a kind of anti-establishment rage. You know, 50% of American men now think that society too often punishes men just for acting like men. And actually black men are more likely to think it than white men. And so the feminist interpretation of that is, well, they're just complaining about the fact that they can't sexually harass women anymore. I don't think that's it. That may be true for a small number of them. I think is that there's this sense of there's just something about maleness and masculinity that's seen as a problem now. And that's profoundly unhelpful. Yes. And before I respond to that, I want to share a similar story. I think your father and my father made a similar sacrifice and one that I wasn't aware of until I was in my 20s. My dad and my mom started their own small business when I was about 16. But before that, my dad worked a job that he was deeply unhappy with. And uh, oftentimes he made it known. I I remember uh, during the summers, I would go in with him to work. I would do just kind of like menial tasks at 12, 13 years old. So he could teach me like the importance of work. And I would sweep up the warehouse where he was working and help clean things up. But I could tell that he was oftentimes deeply unsatisfied with his career. And I've always wondered just because I saw him as so capable and brilliant and really, I, I thought that any business would be blessed to have him. I couldn't understand why he was continuing to work in this job that clearly didn't appreciate him the way that I felt he should be appreciated. And it didn't make sense to me for a very long time. And then there were a lot of things that my dad finally confided to me once I was in my 20s, I think because he felt that I was independent enough that he didn't have to project this image of strength that maybe he felt he had to do when I was 12 or 13 or a feeling of stability. Because I put that question to him point blank. I said, why did you stay in this job when I'm sure there must have been other companies that were in your industry that would have been happy to have you? And we were having dinner at the time out at a restaurant. I remember this as clear as day. He looked at me across the table and he says, Michael, there actually was a job opportunity that I got when you were about 11, 10 or 11. It would have been two and a half, maybe even three times the salary that I was getting, but it would have required us to move about three hours away. And when my dad was a child, he and his four brothers moved around a lot because his dad, sometimes for reasons beyond his control, sometimes for reasons very much within his control, just didn't keep a job. And so my dad and his four brothers were oftentimes going from school to school, going to a new school district every couple of years. So my dad and his brothers never had the opportunity to make long lasting friends. And so he decided that he would rather work at a job that he often hated 
to make sure that my sister and I, excuse me, to make sure that my sister and I didn't have to go through what he went through and so that we could have childhood friends from five till 18. And uh, those are the kinds of sacrifices, especially as I grow older, that I very much appreciate. Well, you just, you don't, you, you, when you have your own children, I really, I realized that I was looking at my own father in a completely different way when I became a father. And, and sometimes there'd be like long journeys, like frustrating things you'd have to do, sacrifices. I took some time at the labor market, which I loved, but, and I did some commuting myself. And then I thought, yeah, hang on, didn't, didn't my dad? And then I thought, wow, that's why he did that. There's a danger with this conversation that, that I was reminded of this scene in, do you know the movie Primary Colors? Yes. There's a scene in there where the two main political characters are down in the South. They're bragging about how great their mums are. And I think the wife rolls her eyes and says, oh, no, we're into a Southern mumathon. Oh, my mother did this. My mama did this. We're having a dadathon now, you and I. But I had this experience, really strong experience with my dad. He, became, he was unemployed a couple of times. He was in white-collar work but in manufacturing in the 80s, which was pretty brutal in the UK. So he was unemployed a couple of times, once for quite a while. And the time he was unemployed, and he was you know, clearly the way that the economics worked in the family at the time was that he had to be the one to really go bread. My mum was a part-time nurse, which helped. But, and it took him quite a while. I vividly remember he'd come down to the breakfast table and he would be wearing a shirt and tie and a V-neck, a V-neck sweater. He wouldn't put on his jacket, but he had a V-neck sweater, but shirt and tie, and he'd shave. So he'd get up and shower and shave and put on a tie in order to go into what used to be, I guess, our playroom, which was turned into a temporary office for him to type up and send out CVs and resumes and apply for jobs and go through the newspapers. It was obviously a long time ago to apply for jobs. And it took him a long time, actually. It took him months, I think almost a year, to find a job that time around. And I remember asking him, even then, I said, why are you putting a tie on and shaving when you're just going to go into the room there and look for a job? You don't have a job. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I do have a job. I have a job to go get another job so that I can take care of you and your brother and sister. Mm. And that's why I'm shaving, putting a tie on, because I still have a job. That's my job now. And it just, it was just to this day, right? I don't know, I was probably 14, 13, 14, and it just stopped me in my tracks. I felt, you know, those moments where you just realize what a colossal jerk and just how shallow you are and how little <laughs> the world you understand. And then you're kind of confronted with this sort of just your dad saying, Yeah, I have a job. I need to look after you guys and I'm going to put a tie on it. And it's actually one of the things that I think is lost in the debate about gender now to sort of pan out a little bit is the central importance of fathers and of fatherhood as a social institution. And I think because it's been unbundled from the traditional marital relationship, because it's no longer the case that the women are economically dependent on men to anything like the same degree they were, I mean, it's a transformation. So what does it mean then to be a dad? And because husband and father used to be basically synonymous, actually, as we've moved away from that economic dependency, the question of what does it mean to be a good father is really is really one we don't have a good answer to. And what it means is that if the relationship between the mother and father ends, or perhaps never was, we're kind of just culturally benching the dads. And caught between, again, back to where we were a while ago, the polarized debate, on the conservative right, you'll say it's all about marriage, right? You can only be a good dad if you're married, basically. That's an exaggeration of what they'll say, but to all intents and purposes, that's what they're saying. Marriage is the solution. Even though 40% of kids are born outside marriage, most kids to non-college educated are born outside marriage. Most children won't be with both their biological parents throughout their childhood. Meanwhile, on the left, and again, these are the extremes, on the left, you'll say, dads don't matter. 
And how dare you say that fathers matter? What does that mean for same-sex couples? Are you saying that single parents aren't any good? Are you saying that same-sex couples, that two women are somehow failing? If, if two women have a son, they're failing because he doesn't have a dad. What are you saying? You're being homophobic. You're being anti-single parents. It's like, no, no, no. By the way, all the single-sex female couples I know who have sons are going out of their way to find positive male role models for them. So father figures, if you like, if not the actual father. So they know. They don't think that <laughs> fathering is irrelevant. Right? It's just the few activists. But caught between the dads don't matter and marriage is the only solution is the truth, which is fathers matter, period. For all the reasons that you and I just spent quite a bit of time talking about our own fathers, there's a real importance and beauty to the distinct role that fathers play in kids' lives. And that's, I think, been sorely neglected in our current debates for the reasons that I've identified, for some of the political reasons. And the Daniel Beattie poem, I just think there isn't a single sensible person out there who doesn't think that kids do better if they have good fathering relationships, especially sons, but also daughters. I was really struck by this very good study which found that the mental health of a woman at the age of 33 can be quite strongly predicted by the quality of her relationship with her father at 16. Wow. Now, they tried to control for all the other things that could be going on there and still holds. That feels right, doesn't it? Doesn't that feel right? If you're a girl and you know you have a good relationship with your dad at 16, when all kinds of shit is going on, yes, that probably sets you up to do better in life, right? And if you don't have a good relationship with your dad at 16, and there's all of this evidence that girls who don't have a good relationship are more likely to become pregnant, they're more likely to engage in risky behaviors, it's doubly true for boys getting a girl pregnant, drug-taking, crime. And so particularly in adolescence, in those much-neglected years of high school, dads have a huge role to play. And I, I really do think we're doing a disservice to our kids if we don't elevate in policy and in culture the role of dads for fear of offending single parents or for a fear of offending the pro-marriage right. Yes. We don't hesitate to talk about the importance of mothers for fear of offending fathers. It just needs to go both ways. No, that's true. <laughs> that's so true. I mean, it wouldn't occur to us to, to do that, would it? It wouldn't occur to us to say, well, do moms matter really? I mean, again, you might say, well, what about gay men who have children, who are very, very rare, by the way. It's quite unusual for gay men to have children. Or it's quite common for women in same-sex couples to have children. But you're right. We wouldn't dream of saying that there aren't roles to play for both men and women. What we don't have to do in order to acknowledge the importance of both those roles is we don't have to determine them. We don't have to say you're in them for life. Back to a, a discussion earlier about preferences, it seems pretty clear to me that for really young kids, there is a genuine preference for mums to be with them more than dads. Like I just think that's a genuine difference. Like a six-month-old child, everything else equal, it does look as if mums, there's, there's a real desire. And that's not just socialized brainwashing. And the reason I'm really confident that it's not socialized brainwashing is because it's true of women with Harvard MBAs. So there's a good Claudia Golden work. Women with a, an MBA from Harvard are choosing to take some time out with their kids when they're really young. And I don't think that's because those women have been socialized into a patriarchal way of looking at the world and told they must stay at home. I think it's because they're choosing to. And we have to honor that choice. But it doesn't mean that they're going to be doing that 10 years later or 16 years later. It takes decades to raise kids. I can tell you that from experience. What women get pissed about is the sense that just because they might do more of the very early years childcare, that somehow means that that's them for life. That's their career track sorted, that it's binary, that we have this kind of arbitrary sorting mechanism at the birth of the child that determines our roles for the next 20, 25 years. That's the problem. And again, it requires us to just take a more nuanced view of the reality of actual people's lives, both women's lives and men's lives. Because in the end, one of the reasons I think that people are reacting reasonably well 
to my cry to help more boys and men, especially those who are suffering most, is because the people who know best of all how much that can hurt families are women. There are very few women out there who think that male suffering doesn't hurt women as well, economically, in terms of family life, etc. We all need to flourish. This zero-sum thing, again, is just really getting in the way. We can rise together. And there is a really good reason now to pay as much attention to some of the problems of boys and men as we have historically paid to women and girls. It was quite right to pay more attention to women and girls for, let's say, conservatively, the last 10,000 years. And in the blink of an eye, effectively, the world has changed. And it's incredibly hard to update our views. But if we don't, we're just leaving millions of our boys and men behind. And that's not good for anybody, least of all women. Richard, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. And there are probably three dozen more garden paths I could walk down with you because your book is that good. In the preface of your book, you write, quote, George Bryce Cameron, I love you beyond measure. That's why even now I sometimes worry about you, end quote. So my question to you to wrap us out, Richard, would be, if you were talking to a listener right now, as if you were talking to your own son at a younger age, if he were feeling lost and aimless and not sure what to do next, if we were to strip away the research we've discussed today and the systemic problems and just made it personal one-to-one, what would you say to that aimless young boy? The first thing I would say is that you are entirely unique. There is no other you in the world. There never has been and there never will be. And whether you believe that from a religious perspective or not, that you're made in the image of God and that you contain the fragment of divinity within you, or whether you just want to take the secular version of that, which is that no one else has your DNA helix, there's only one of you. And you're incredibly precious in our sight. You're incredibly precious to our world, to your family, to your friends. And who and how you're going to be in the world, the kind of gift you're going to be, is just hugely important. And the first gift you can give is to be kind to yourself. Whatever you hear about yourself, whatever, however much you screw up, just know that you're incredibly precious and that you're not judged by your latest exam result or your latest embarrassing failure at romantic overtures or whatever it is, but just know that. And the most important thing is going to be to figure out how to be under your own steam, how to go your way in a way that is respectful of others. Always look at other people in the eye, always shake their hand. Always presume the best of somebody else until they prove you otherwise. Presume goodwill. It's mostly a good and a kind world, and you can help it make even more. So presume that. Go out to the world with an open face and an open smile, an open heart, and most of the time you'll be rewarded. And a few times you'll get kicked in the nuts, and you'll think, yeah, okay, that one didn't work out. But trust me, most of the time, if you enter the world with that spirit, the world will return you a hundredfold. And then Figure out your path. Go your way in a way that's respectful of others, but go your way. The thing that's most important is you have precious gifts. There's only one of you. Go be who you want to be. And the labor market will look after you. You'll find a way. And to do that, you have to believe in this incredibly precious sense of yourself. And you have to know how loved you are. I dedicated the book to my three sons, but the big character in it is my godson, Dwight, who's African-American. And he's the main character in that chapter. And he's the one that always texts me on Father's Day when he lost his own father when he was young. And I have been a father figure to him for sure. And he's an unbelievably attentive godson. <laughs> it's like it's a running joke in our family. And he just, he has his own sons. He says, I want them to be free and I want them to be able to be themselves. 
And some of that sounds cliched, but if I'm looking at, I've got this young man in my eye right now and I'm thinking of one or two that come up to me, I'm looking him in the eye and I'm telling him you're heard, you're known and you're seen. That's what you need to know. We see you. We're with you. We got your back. Go for it. Richard, your book is so vitally important and your time is valuable. So thank you for sharing it with us today. And thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Michael. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for the time you've taken. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. I want to learn more about the Where We Go Next audience, which means I want to learn more about you and your thoughts on the show. So if you're listening right now, please send me an email at wherewegopod at gmail.com and let me know, one, what's your all-time favorite episode of the podcast and why, two, what's your least favorite episode of the podcast and why, and three, where would you like to see this show go next? And hey, while you're here, if you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two sentence review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Thanks so much for listening. I look forward to hearing from you.